1: Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2, Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. We're back for another 10 episodes. Today we'll be covering John 2, that is, Chapter 10, with friend of the podcast, Kim Renfro. Steve and I will be doing our first look at Season 2, and we'll begin a new feature, which will become a weekly feature on Electric Boogaloo. This we're calling Ask Aaron Anything. So, without further ado, here is Bosman Aaron. Ask Aaron
0: anything!
1: Aaron, welcome to Ask Aaron Anything. Are you ready? I am ready for anything. All right, this first question comes from Luke When is the last
2: time you saw your chin? Oh, so this is actually—I um, know this one because anything means anything. <laughs> I, it, it it sure as shit does. Um, I shaved my beard after a first horrific dying incident. Uh, right what? before, yeah, I started dying my beard because uh, it was going oh, like, I uh, you, like Santa had a Claus white.
1: Experience?
2: No, no, no. I started dying my beard because it was going Santa Claus <laughs> white. Like my dad. My dad, would tie, one time he's forty-five, beard completely white. He still has a yeah. full head. Of dark brown hair, but he went prematurely yeah. gray in the chin. So I'm like, I'm not ready for that. I, unlike my father, I am losing my hair. My hair is graying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started dyeing it. The first time, it just looked like I took shoe black to it, and I was so mortified that I shaved the thing off. And it was the weekend that we moved out of. Uh, our studio on Red Bank. I have a video of me like walking, like it's, it's Oprah there on slash bald move of me like going and doing a <laughs> walkthrough and showing how everybody, how everything was set up before we tore it down. So that was two and a half years ago ish, uh-huh. I think. It was last time. <laughs> last time my chin decided. All right.
1: Well, that's good. Good to know. All right. This question's for me Who's more dangerous, Amos from The Expanse or Littlefinger from
2: Game of Thrones? Oh, I mean, Amos is only as dangerous as the the person who's holding his leash. And Amos knows that, and he tends to gravitate towards people who he perceives as good. People like Naomi, people like Jim Holden. Uh, Whereas Littlefinger is out, like, he wants to rule the world. And he will grind whatever grist in the mill requires to get to those game conditions. He's by far the more dangerous, terrifying person. I think that...
1: If you're in the room, if you're like in the room with Amos, oh. he's more dangerous.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. If you're if, if you're, you're, you're not in a bro- in the
1: room, then Littlefinger is far more dangerous.
2: Yeah, if you're in a brothel and he's been drinking all night and the mood sour, and you looked at him funny, then yeah, you're probably going to get split in half by Amos. Uh, whereas Peter's like he's he's going to do a a, a cat Stark and and try to get some you know hedge knight to to <laughs> stick a sword in you for some yeah. some gold And it'll and some be favors. like five years from now yeah 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 so but but there again you know it still is kind of certain death all right
1: uh so on the expanse which by the way i want to let you know i want to thank you because i had read the first book of the expanse and i and i watched the first season of the expanse and i just gave up the whole season first season you didn't like it I just I wasn't into it. I don't know okay. why. I just wasn't it into it. But this ends well because I thought, you know, I want to hear Jim and Aaron cover a show that they feel that they they're both really excited about. So I, I gave it another shot, and I'm so glad I did. I'm I'm totally in. I love I love it. I, I love I love where they've gone with it, and I'm loving the Expanse coverage.
2: So, I mean, it's it's go. Game of Thrones in in space. I uh, no, got, you guys keep saying that. I do. I don't. You don't. Too many we got we got the space Jon Snow. We got all the different factions. We got the political intrigue. You really? Because you're different. Okay, so what's your? Why isn't it Game of Thrones in space?
1: You know, I was asking about the actors on Game of Thrones.
2: Oh, okay, I see where you're going. Game of yeah. Thrones,
1: even if it was like a really minor role, I feel like. We all have trouble with the final seasons, but throughout, from the beginning to the end, that ensemble cast killed it. They were so good from beginning to end. And I feel like with The Expanse, uh, you know, there are a few, maybe four or five really compelling characters, but but the the, the cast around them, like, sometimes the acting is, is a bit shoddy. I don't, what do you think about that?
2: I think that you overvalue a British accent and your racist belters. <laughs> I think you hear Jared Harris, who's the fi- one of the finest actors alive, start spitting Beltalenga and start with the you know oh yeah well walla, belta and you just like you're, you're you just can't handle it can't uh. handle it too much too much of an inner Anthony uh-huh. too uh-huh. much of a well waller to appreciate no you're right like. I'm not. I don't think that like because like th- I I say the same thing about like Star Trek: The Next Generation. Like amongst the bridge crew, yeah, they're all That's pretty exactly. good actors. But like, and sometimes you get a planetary governor who's James Cromwell, and he's actually pretty good. And sometimes you get the guy who's just like I don't know, mm-hmm. blew the cousin of the grip, and it's like bad. Yeah, uh, the fall off is pretty. And I think the Expanse is similar. Not not nearly that bad. But yeah, they they definitely. Uh, it's cast some seven foot tall European basketball players for belters <laughs> and other people who might not be, you know, renowned for their acting ability. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't It's yeah, you're you're probably right. The acting is not nearly as strong as Game of Thrones, but hopefully the in game will actually be something that's not uh cover your uh, cover your your eyes and ears dumpster fire.
1: Yeah, I think you and I may have a different take on the ending, but that's that's a question for another show, maybe. Yeah. Before you go, do you remember Pigs in Space? (laughs) Oh sure, yeah. Pigs in Space. I'd like Uh you to say, "Ask Aaron anything."
2: Okay. All right, go for it. Ask Aaron anything. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect.
1: All right, man. I think throw
2: throw is- an echo. Throw an echo effect on I absolutely going to reverb the whole thing.
1: <laughs> if you have a question for Aaron or Anthony, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. Kim, welcome to Electric Bukaloo.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Kim, of course, listeners of this podcast will recognize Kim Renfro, entertainment correspondent at... Insider, did I get that right? Should yes. I set that <laughs> differently? No. All right. That is
0: correct. Correspondent can it feels like a very uh yeah. fanciful title sometimes, but hey, <laughs> sure, here I am. Sure,
1: there you are. And this is gonna sound contrived, Kim, but I'm being totally serious. I was just talking with Aaron this morning about your wonderful book.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Yeah. About about eleven AM Eastern, your ears should have been burning a
0: little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was just about when I had my morning coffee. There so, you go. there you go. Sure.
1: You no, know, we were talking about sort of when Game of Thrones became a larger cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that you make the argument in your book that it re- wasn't really till the Red Wedding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think. Um, I might use this phrase in my book, but it, it, it felt like a little bit of like a curtain drop yeah, sort of moment where right. there were a lot of people, uh, you know, fans of Martin's books who had been who had been following them since the 90s, fan like newcomers to the show in seasons one and two, uh, who, you know, like Ned Stark's death, I think definitely clued a lot of people in mm-hmm. on the fact that this show was Unlike something that we had seen in TV yet. Right. But there was a lot of great TV happening at the time. And I think that the Red Wedding really is when, like, like, if you were to look at sort of like a, a trending chart of interest in Game of Thrones, like the Red Wedding is when that spike just starts yeah. climbing, like, astronomically. Because, Which is so
1: great. Yeah. Because yeah. that was when there were so many people, I remember experiencing this, I don't know, was this 2013 or something like this? Yeah, um, I remember people saying, "I'm done. I'm totally done." <laughs> and it's almost like because you had a, enough people saying, "No, I'm done. I'm out. This is all bullshit." That there was so many, there was like a hundred more people for every one of those people that said, "Well, oh, I gotta go see what the what everyone's talking about."
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, people. I I think that that's a very human trait that people like to be. In on something that is right. popular and that's being talked about, and the red wedding was so special. I think because a book readers did an incredible job of protecting that spoiler from the show. I know, folks, right?
1: Isn't that kind which, of crazy and amazing?
0: Yeah, no. In retrospect, I think that that it was a very, it was a very generous, um, like communal act on everybody's behalf that everybody right. sort of was like, yeah, we're, we're going to let people have the same experience that we had when we were reading the books. Um, which I mean, I truthfully don't know if that would be the case these days anymore. That's a good question.
1: I mean, given how
0: spoiler culture works now online,
1: maybe so, maybe so,
0: but I'd like yeah. to
1: think, I'd like to think that there's something there's, there's a generous spirit among the fandom I don't know. Maybe I'm being
0: a Pollyanna. Uh, And hey, maybe I'm a hardened (laughs) cynic in the year 2021 here. It's
1: well earned. (laughs) (laughs) It is well earned. All right. Well, fantastic. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a synopsis of the chapter we're covering. We're covering John's second POV chapter. Is that right? Yeah.
0: All
1: right. Yeah. So John's second POV chapter. So John is preparing to leave for the wall. He climbs the steps to Bran's room to say goodbye. Although Catelyn tells him to leave, and Bran is still comatose, John manages to complete the task. We hear that Catelyn has prayed for Bran to stay, and she blames herself for his condition. John attempts to console her, but she has nothing but truly horrible things to say to him. John leaves and says goodbye to Rob. He then goes to Arya's room, where he finds her packing. He scolds her playfully for allowing Nemiria to help her pack. Then he gives her a gift. It's a thin, bravosi sword that Arya must keep secret. The two, both name the sword, needle together before they say their final goodbye. It is devastating. I can't... <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I mean, Catelyn is just horrible. Yeah. And it's so crazy because in just a few chapters, I'm going to fall in love with Catelyn. And yet right here, how can she's just a monster?
0: Yeah. It's a really, there's a lot of cruelty that you feel towards Jon, which gets really nicely juxtaposed with the warmth that he gets from his siblings. Especially Um,
1: Arya, especially Arya. Right.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting that even though Sansa isn't in the chapter, uh, she's still a little bit present in the way that John and Arya kind of like joke about right. don't tell Sansa about That's the right. sword. And it sort of it does a lot of good work in connecting Sansa to Catelyn and sort of setting them as like the two in the family who are who feel the most anti John. Yeah,
1: yeah in, in such a such a, a few in, in so few words, you really feel the bond between these two. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we haven't seen these two in many scenes together so far. And yet I really get the sense that they really love each other. Mm -hmm. Um, it's such a tragic chapter and yet it's so tender. uh, It ends that way anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think that I really love throughout every chapter. I mean, even in brand's first chapter, when we first meet John through brand's point of view, I think that. In, in so many very small scenes, George does a really good job of setting up how John has this sort of, like, protective and almost, like, paternalistic relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the younger kids. Um, like, the way that he kind of, like, helps Bran, you know, show good face at his first execution. And then here, you know, all it takes, like, Needle is such a special symbol of that relationship because yeah. it's like only it, it makes it clear that only John would think to have that sword made for Aria. And we know how important that sword becomes to her entire, her life from this moment. Yeah. Forward whenever.
1: Yeah. It's kind of a, it's kind of a beautiful little trick that Martin's playing here because whenever she reflects on the sword or I, I, I guess, I don't know, I guess it's the sword. Um, reflects on needle, or loses needle, or you know hides needle, or whatever gets needle back. It's it's a little shorthand to call back to her entire life at Winterfell,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and especially that that sort of special relationship she has with John. But Martin doesn't need to sort of expound on that every single time he wants to recall Winterfell. All he has to do is bring up Needle and then our entire thought world is anchored at Winterfell again.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I think it's important that um, it felt important reading, reading this beginning section of the book again, that John is the one, like we say goodbye to Winterfell first, through john's mm. perspective like mm. we aren't in rob's head we aren't in aria's head uh we aren't in ned's head you know like mm-hmm. i think that it i think that there's something there's something important happening there that the first time that we as the audience are getting this sort of like bittersweet goodbye with winterfell that it's happening through john's point of view
1: yeah that's right okay so guest choice um you can choose to talk about a character a plot point a theme. Or, Kim, we can just climb the ladder of chaos together.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to climb ladders of chaos at any time. <laughs> I, if there's like a ladder of chaos with Jon specifically, we feel like climbing, I'm game for that. Because I feel like he's a divisive character for some people. And I've always been such a big fan of Jon Snow. Um, reading the books for the first time, I just completely fell in love with the way yeah. that he grows up. Um, it's so interesting
1: that you said that because I just recently did an interview with um, David Peterson. Mm-hmm. David did the, you know, invented the languages for Game of Thrones. Yeah. And we were talking about uh, John and he just thinks that John is just boring. <laughs> just He's just not interested in John as a character at all. And I was kind of arguing. I was like, yeah, but he gets interesting. He really gets interesting and then I was rereading this chapter last night and I was thinking, no, I don't think that at all. I think John's interesting from the very beginning. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I'm I'm with you. I'm kind of like John.
0: Yeah. I think that he even in his early chapters and even when he's at his most um sort of immature, like he he absolutely has like this like whininess and immaturity around him, but I found I found all of those qualities that he was displaying very understandable given the situation that he clearly show us yeah. that he's in, like especially with the treatment that he's apparently been living with from Catelyn for his mm-hmm. entire life, is I mean, that that's emotional abuse that he's been enduring from, you know, his father's wife. That's hard well, the stuff. Only,
1: right, the only motherly figure he has in his life. Right. I mean, who else is actually in this role? I, we don't get the sense that Septa Mordane or whatever has kind of stepped in. Right. I I get the sense that John has just been living with this sense of you know, all of my siblings get to have a mom and I don't, and not only that, this woman just hates my guts.
0: Mhm. Like wants me dead. Yeah. She like she tells me to my face that she would rather I had been thrown from a tower. How is John not a serial
1: killer? I mean, give me a break. (laughs) I mean, he's just, he just has this horrific uh, relationship with this motherly figure. And uh, I don't get the sense that Ned is that aware. I I think he's a little bit aware. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: But I also get the sense from this chapter that John has kind of been trying to protect uh, the other members of the family from,
0: Yes. This,
1: yeah. This this sort of enmity between Catelyn and him.
0: Yeah. The way that he lies to Rob. Yeah. Like when like Rob can clearly sense that something is bothering him and he chooses to like tell him like your mother was kind yeah. instead of he comes telling down, him the truth.
1: Yeah. He comes down from Bran's room. Rob knows that Catelyn was up there. Rob is at least smart enough to know that there's some sort of weird relationship between these two. And all he says is, you know, kind of he fumbles over his words and says, my mother and John interrupts him lies simply to save his feelings. Right. Right. Because he knows I don't want to screw things up between this kid and his mom that that's kind of a dick move. Yeah. But yeah. But that's kind of part and parcel with his character because he's constantly throughout his life sort of living in this subordinate reality where he's always has to be deferent to to Rob. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he knows Rob's actually the important person in this. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not just second fiddle. I just, I'm like a prop in his story. Mm -hmm. That's how it feels anyway.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you, I, I've seen the case made and I understand all the reasons why Catelyn feels very defensive about having, uh, her husband's bastard raised in the house, and how she feels like he might be a threat, um, sure, to her children's like future and livelihood. But it's also George. George lets us know that, and also shows us like the sort of the sad tragedy in the fact that if she just bothered mm-hmm. to speak to John and and like and get to know him, she would know that he's not the kind of person who has any intention of doing that. And in fact, he's the one who was so desperate to go to the wall and like set up his future so that he can never like be a threat to Rob's uh, like Lordship in Winterfell or anything like that. And I also like reading this chapter there, there's just such like a tenderness in the way that he, it's so important to him that he says goodbye to brand that yeah. she's willing to, to face her down. And like, multiple times she tries to get him to leave that room and and does it in like the cruelest of ways and he just he like stands his ground and I find those little early moments of bravery in Mm -hmm. his character really special um I also just I love that he just cries like honestly let more men cry in (laughs) in books and movies and shows you know like I part of the reason I think why I rewatch Lord of the Rings and love it all the time is because like those movies are just packed with men showing like tenderness and emotion to each other in yeah. a way true. that I don't think we see enough. And so I love that, like even in these early chapters of a game of Thrones, Martin is, is bringing that like emotionality to some of these young men.
1: You also get really get the sense that Catelyn, well, she's, I'm going to read this little passage. Mm-hmm. So I prayed for it. She said, Dully, he was my special boy. I went to the sept and prayed seven times to the seven faces of God that Ned would change his mind and leave him here with me. Sometimes prayers are answered. John did not know what to say. It wasn't your fault, he managed after an awkward silence. Her eyes found him. They were full of poison. I need none of your absolution, bastard. John lowered his eyes. She was cradling one of Bran's hands. He took the other, squeezed it, fingers like the bones of birds. Goodbye, he said. He was at the door when she called out to him. John, she said. He should have kept going, but she had never called him by his name before. He turned to find her looking at his face, as if she were seeking it for the first time. Yes, he said. It should have been you. And, all right, okay. Okay. <laughs> It's just too brutal. much to take. It's just too much to take. There's so much there. But the thing that caught me initially was the... It should have been you because he's on his way out. She doesn't have to say it. Right. She's gotten what she wants. He's finally leaving Winterfell. She never has to see him again. But she has to stick the dagger in? It's right. just horrible.
0: Right. Yeah. <sighs> and especially after she... It, that little confession to him also feels like a very special character moment for her, because like, again, this, I mean, this is the first, this is the first chapter where we have one of the Stark's perspectives on what's happening to Bran. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. prior to this, we just kind of got like some outward exposition from Tyrion about what's going on with Bran. But this is like the first time that we're seeing him and that we understand like he's in a coma Catelyn's been sitting with him day and night for weeks. I think it's like multiple, like a fortnight or something.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, By the way, fortnight's a good yeah. word. And we ought to, we, we really ought to do our best to bring fortnight. back around. <laughs> it's useful.
0: It is. It, it's much better than the bi-monthly, bi-weekly disaster it's, that's, that's so happened lame. in the English exactly. language. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that
1: means half the time. So Fortnite's good. We should bring it back, but you're right. Okay. So sorry to, sorry to interrupt.
0: No, no. And so I, I like, again, I think George is so good at at telling us a lot with very little. And so Catelyn having this sort of like, almost like confession moment to John um, where like, obviously she's only saying that because she feels guilty and she feels like she might be at fault for the fact that, that Brian is lying on that bed. And John, John recognizes that and tries to empathize with this woman. Who's apparently literally never spoken his first name. That was the other thing that I was.
1: Yes. That that got me so, so, uh, I don't know. At my core.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm thinking this is what their relationship has been like. Like, what has she been calling him? She's either been ignoring him, calling him the bastard or just calling him snow or something like that. Mm Mm-hmm. So there's this is this is like the most intimate interaction that they've ever had. She like I don't know if she's confessing to him or just confessing to herself or just talking out loud without really knowing. I don't know what she's doing, confessing to him about this whole thing where she's blaming herself.
0: It feels like she knows he's not going to repeat that information. to. So he's safe he's he's a safe person to dump that on which again is a heavy thing to try to put on a kid right. i mean i know 14 year olds in this setting are considered more grown than they are in modern times right. but like still she knows that he's a kid and she would i don't think that she would ever say that to rob or to sansa she's she's saying it to him because she knows that that, right. that sort of like dark thing that she's feeling is safe in him um, and then at the same time instead of instead of allowing that to to be the end of it she has to like double down on her cruelty to him and you know look at him with right. poison in her eyes and call him bastard and then still push that knife in a little bit more oh my while gosh. he's out the door
1: so I, i'm going to step on a little bit of the book book versus show differences uh, mm-hmm. but this is not in the show they delete a lot of these lines and what ends up happening is John says goodbye. And then there's no confession. She says, I want you to go. And he leaves as Ned comes in. Yeah. So Ned comes in. And so you don't hear any of that sort of confession, but what ends up happening is they take a story similar to that and they put it on cat's lips in a conversation with Talisa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what ends up happening is she says, well, actually, when Br- when John was a boy, he was sickly, and I prayed to the gods that he would live, and I promised the gods that if, if he did, I would, I don't know, I would take care of him, and I wouldn't be horrible anymore. So it's almost like they grabbed this little snippet of dialogue, and they reframed it for a later confession but this time it's not told to john it's about john as a baby right so that's a little nice little trick there and i like that they did that because when i first read this i thought this is just kind of too much yeah it it should have been you like what mom actually says like you you could have a horrible mom who who's actually going to say that it feels a little bit contrived
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it wouldn't have worked in the show because you need all of that internal buildup. I think it's in her previous, in in the chapter prior to this, where she has a lot of internal thoughts about the fact that Ned not only sired a bastard, but that he then brought him home for all the world to see. Um, And that that was like a special kind of humiliation that she had to endure When she had, you know, she married the man that she married the brother of the man she was supposed to marry, (laughs) immediately got pregnant. And then he went off to war and she was just alone for years. And then he comes back.
1: Not just alone for years, alone for years in a totally alien environment. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. And then he comes back with another woman's baby, which is highly unusual for custom. As, as we learn from her point of view. So yeah, in the show, you don't have all of that context for why she would be so hateful towards him. And I think that Benioff and Weiss and the and the season one writers were probably just aware that that would turn audiences against Catelyn too much, like too early. Probably. Uh, you know, she's, she's flawed later. And I mean, even still in this moment, you get that sense of, of sort of like disdain that she has for John in that scene a little bit. It's just, it's watered down, I think so that audiences aren't, aren't against her for the entirety of the rest of the show.
1: That's right. And somehow, I don't know how, but somehow through Martin's magic, the next time Kat, I, I get a POV from Kat's perspective. I'm totally in. Like I've forgotten about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I I'm in love with Cat and can't wait to see what she does next. You know, some of these character arcs, like Jamie or whatever, it's going to take several books for you to actually forgive him for what he does in book one. Yeah. But with Cat, it's almost like this full one eighty. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe I just uh, maybe it was just my experience. But I I don't hold this against her later on.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that she, in all the ways that her cruelty towards Jon is hard to swallow in mm-hmm. in the moments, I think that it, the way that she has had to sort of harden herself as a woman in the world of Westeros, I think becomes really clear really quickly, and you even don't have to see it from Catelyn's perspective, but like you get it in the way that Arya is struggling against the roles being assigned to her and in the way that Sansa yeah. is completely embracing them. And so I think by the time that you get back around to Catelyn, you're like, Oh, this is what, this is what she's up against as the wife of Lord Stark. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that that might have something to do with why it yeah.
1: does
0: stick as much.
1: Yeah. The passage that I read also has this little indicator and I don't know if it's a foreshadowing or whatever, I think it's intentional, but let me run it past you, okay so brands when when John first sees Brand's hand, it's described as it looks like a claw mm-hmm. and then in the passage where he grabs the hand, it says it it felt like bird bones mm-hmm. and so I'm wondering if little hints, little foreshadowing details yeah. about the being being the three eyed crow.
0: Yeah, that set off little alarm bells in my head when I was rereading it too, especially because I think the next time that we that we get Bran's dreams, he's flying, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So
0: like we're, like the first time that we see Bran lying there, he has these sort of like bird-like descriptors attached to him. And then the next time that we're in his head, we know that it's like what he's going through while he's lying on that bed is very connected right. to Three-Eyed Crow.
1: Now I didn't know till much later. I didn't know till Aaron and I were writing our books on this that Bran actually means crow, raven mm. in in Welsh. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I just kind of stumbled upon the whole Bran the Blessed uh, mythology, and it totally makes sense, right? But for most readers, I would guess you're not thinking of Bran like you know, like, like that it means bird you're, or crow or whatever. I think that you're just thinking of it as like a shortened form of Brandon. Right.
0: Yeah, definitely. But that, that's what again, I when I was first reading it.
1: Right, right, right. So again, you know, little these tiny little seeds that Martin is sowing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I really love. It's also interesting to think about this chapter in the context of his original outline. Have you read that?
1: Is it? Are you talking about the whole maybe Arya and John might yeah. hook up eventually?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that like Arya and John were supposed to like actually wind up realizing that they're like madly in love with each other, and then it's uh. like a love triangle with Tyrion. What? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know that part of it. I'm pretty sure it's like I, if I remember correctly, it's like Arya gets married off to Tyrion, which he wound up changing out for. Uh. Sansa and then it becomes like this like really intense thing where like Jon and Arya are for real in love but she's already been married to Tyrion and it's like a whole a whole debacle but I, because like, there's
1: not enough incest oh, in know. the in this story we just you know we probably need just a two or three more examples of this <laughs> just to round just it to out
0: have... Just a, just a little extra seasoning on this uh, incest too. Well, we've got. Oh my gosh! Going on. I'm so I thankful
1: that that didn't come to fruition.
0: I know because I mean, and that's why, like, reading it and even like watching the show, I'm like, I love the affection that Jon and Arya have for each other as yeah. siblings, and I'm like, I, it would be really unfortunate to twist that relationship into something that feels. I, I don't know. I I cannot. Feels gross. Absolutely feels gross. Feel, yeah, yeah. So no, thank you. Uh,
1: Well, okay, good. It's good. It's good. It's good. (laughs) We didn't have to deal with that.
0: No, but like another another context thing that I also like about um, the chapter order in here, and I won't I won't spoil your next episode by getting into the Danny chapter that follows this one. Oh no, go
1: no do it because spoilers abound in this podcast. Okay, go for it. Well,
0: I again like rereading this. This opening section of a Game of Thrones. I think it's interesting that this chapter with Jon is immediately followed by Danny's wedding chapter, which in the show they rearrange the order of things so that Danny's wedding happens in uh-huh. the final subset of the pilot. Um, whereas instead in the books she doesn't get married to Khal Drogo until right after this chapter with Jon. And again, knowing what we know now about what George has said about like the books all kind of coming down to John and Danny. Um, And they're like these sort of like
1: sure
0: circling protagonists. I think it's very interesting that this chapter with John is yes, a very kind of like brutal and bittersweet thing that he's going through with this goodbye. And we see kind of the depths of the emotional cruelty he's been experiencing, but like that does not even remotely compare to what Danny is going through at the same period in her life across the sea. And I think that that juxtaposition is really fascinating. Yeah,
1: it is. So, yeah, you can kind of see that if if Martin did want to foreshadow those two characters eventually connecting, they have a lot in common at these early stages. But like, like you said, sort of nothing... Nothing really compared to what's what, what Danny's going through right now.
0: Yeah, it's like there's a there's an there's an intensity to Danny's experiences at this stage of the story that John's story catches up with eventually. Um yeah. but it is interesting that he is sort of like much more slowly eased into these like trials of leadership uh and suffering that he has to go through before he kind of fully matures and gets a more sort of balanced worldview whereas Danny it feels like got fully shoved off into the deep end um and has to do a lot it it just it feels like she has to do a lot more growing up really really yeah. quickly uh whereas John gets the space to sort of like ease into his leadership and ease into his sort of like heroism later
1: yeah I mean for all of the weirdness that ugh, abusive relationships that he's going to have at the wall He's at least in kind of a system where that like that knows how to plug people in mm-hmm. and he's and he's made the choice he's agency i mean you can argue about the amount of agency he actually has, but he has the agency to choose the wall right Danny has zero agency she does not get to choose anything, even the choices she makes seem like they've been kind of forced on her right um Anyway, that it's such a it's such a gross scene in <laughs> the next chapter. I it's know. so hard to reread. It's so hard to reread. I know. Um because I think you tell me what you think, but I think Martin intends us to see the eventual consummation as consensual.
0: Yeah, that first night.
1: Yeah, but I don't yeah. I can't read it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could argue that there's literally no way for a 13-year-old to consent to sex. Like that's why statutory rape Absolutely. is a thing now, uh, because she doesn't, you know, she doesn't understand the weight of what's happening. So even if she right. even if she is a willing participant in her wedding night, that doesn't mean that it's not some some category of assault. Um and then the fact Well, because that,
1: she says no to the wedding several times and then she gets bullied into it.
0: Well, right. And like, I think um, something that I think is being talked about more, which I think is great, is this concept of like, enthusiastic consent. I think that women frequently get coerced into sexual situations. And even if they eventually say yes, or if they eventually seem like they want to do it, um, there is a huge difference between the way that a woman will enthusiastically be like yes i'm totally into this versus like uh i don't know i you know i like me like or like if they're just not really saying anything up until the point that they finally like assent to whatever it's like i don't know so i think that the way that that scene plays out is a very important lesson of like if a young girl is crying <laughs> while you are trying to touch her yeah like no, this even is... if she eventually yeah gets comfortable and says, yes, that initial reaction should be the stopping point.
1: (laughs) It's so gross. It's so gross.
0: Which like, which that might've been a conscious choice on Martin's behalf. I think that what he does with a lot of the women in his books is, is show the unfairness that they're up against in his world. And that mirrors our world in a lot of very direct ways. And so I think that in all the ways that John, Um, John gets a lot of like leeway or I I mean it's also like maybe that's why people think he's boring is because he really he even in his struggles and even in the stuff that he's up against he's carrying a certain amount of privilege in this world because like you said he he gets to he gets to choose to go into a system that has a place built out for him and they even say like bastards can rise high at the wall and he eventually does become Lord Commander
1: Well, and he he grew up a rich kid and he grew up with all of the things that rich kids grow up with. You know, he's he actually has a leg up at the wall because the wall still has this idea that the sons of noblemen will make better commanders. Mm -hmm. And so even though it's kind of a crappy choice for him to go, you know, live out his days in cold celibacy (laughs) and, and mortal peril. Uh yeah, he can rise pretty pretty high at the wall. Which he does.
0: Yeah. And yeah. uh, but it, despite I don't know, th- there are times that I feel like I have to be like apologetic for how much I love Jon Snow just because I'm like mm. I like I'm a sucker for the slightly like reluctant hero like destined to be a king kind of a narrative. And I think that I've talked about this but I don't think that I don't I'm I can't remember what I wrote in my book. I don't know if you have similar.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, all the time.
0: Similar the time. problems. I don't remember if I wrote about this in my book or if I've just like talked about it on Twitter. But like, again, to bring up Lord of the Rings, which I think a lot of people know, it was such like a seminal influence in in Martin's decision to write this epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. I feel like Jon Snow is like, has like the narrative of an Aragorn but he has like the emotional journey of a Frodo where I think that's
1: a really great way to put it yeah say more about that
0: he just like the way that he the way that he ultimately is the one taking on the burden of trying to to stop the White Walkers and trying to sort of bring bring peace between you know the free folk and normal folk because he knows that that's ultimately the only way that all of humanity might survive and that's that winds up taking a real emotional toll on him uh whether it's through like the loss of Ygritte or mm-hmm. the brothers that fall in this war um and all at the same time this hasn't happened in the books yet but like you know we know by now that that John is the son of of Rhaegar and Lyanna right. and and that, like, lurking in sort of, like, the background is this sort of, like, destiny aspect of, like, this idea that he is the is the rightful king of right. Westeros. Yeah, um, so in
1: all those ways, he's like Aragorn, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In In the way that he's like Frodo is that he has to, you know, he, he has his own Sam and he goes into the Dark Realm, right? He goes mm-hmm. north of the Wall to, you know, complete this mission, And in all of those ways, he's a little bit like Frodo and he, you know, he has those kind of deep male friendships that Frodo Mm -hmm. has. Right.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that the way that he, his, his ability to sort of to connect with people and to inspire like a fierce amount of loyalty Mm. in people is part of what I also really like about him because I like, I believe that I believe that, that the other boys that he eventually starts to help and train would feel a very like fierce uh fierce dedication to him and and follow him and in the same way that sam does um and i think that that's also why his relationship with Arya is special because like Arya, clearly even without seeing him for so long still like has this idea of john as like the one person who always understood her right. even before she might've like fully understood herself. And that's why it makes it like, you know, all the way down the line, the fact that, that th- believing that Aria is in danger is the one thing that finally gets John to break his vows and to like really and truly decide to like throw mm. all caution to the wind and, and return to Winterfell. Mm. Like he only yeah. does that because he thinks it's Aria right. Um, And again, that wouldn't be believable without this very short six page chapter at the start of this book.
1: Did you get the sense when I was rereading this, I was thinking, I just miss these characters being together. I was thinking, John never sees Catelyn again. Mm -hmm. So you never have any kind of resolution there. Now, you might get it in the books. You didn't get it in the show. Rob and John never see each other again so they're saying goodbye. Jon and Arya will eventually we're, we're you know, fingers crossed, they will eventually meet up at Winterfell like they do in the show. But I was feeling like through this chapter thinking these characters are so important to me and it's so strange to see them say goodbye at this such an early stage knowing that they're never going to reconnect. Yeah. I guess this chapter hit me even harder during the reread than it did during the first read.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And part of me thinks that Martin knew that he was writing that, that he was like writing like this one last great moment of Winterfell. um, And John's sort of like going through all of these different parts of the castle and seeing different people in a way that he won't, he might not ever again, Mm. or at least not in the, not in, I I, I mean, this is also going to get maybe, into a whole tangent about theories and stuff, but like I'm, I'm kind of in the camp that sure. John is going to come back from his death that happens at the end of a dance of dragons, but he won't be the same. I agree that there will be some sort of like alter alteration to his character or just, even if it's just him feeling, you know, (laughs) just saddened and depressed by the world. I like, I think if, and when he does eventually get back to Winterfell, it's not going to be the John that any of them knew in the and same
1: way. And also Catelyn's not going to be the same, you know? Yeah. I mean, if ever those two meet again, if those two have a lot in common at this point. Yeah. And yet there's some se- <laughs> there's some serious water into the bridge. Yeah. Uh,
0: and Hey, she, maybe she eventually got her wish there. Yeah. John died in a way that Bran never does. That's
1: true. All right. So introductions in this chapter. Introductions. uh, The most notable introduction is simply that we meet Needle for the first time. Mm -hmm. And, and the, you know, that iconic phrase, stick him with the pointy end. Mm -hmm. It's such a symbol for Arya's character. It was a nice introduction. I thought it was, it, it was well done.
0: Yeah. Martin's really good at those small little turns of phrases.
1: Absolutely. That then
0: just like build meaning as the books go on and people repeat them in different contexts.
1: Uh, book versus show differences. Uh, we already talked a little bit about this. In the show, Catelyn doesn't confess and Ned ends up walking in. And then they t- they have in the show, Catelyn and Ned have a little exchange where she actually verbalizes her sense of lament of over his leaving because... Yeah. The last time he left, he came back with another woman's son, right? Yeah, I think that was sort of a, an effective equity of screen time that the showrunners yeah. needed to do.
0: Yeah, although it does it does give you the small sense in the show that Ned is more aware of the way that Catelyn speaks to John because he's there.
1: Yeah, that's right. When
0: she, when she says, you know, I need you to leave. Yeah. all angrily. Um. It's also interesting to me that they, they swapped it around so that John gives Arya a needle before he goes to say goodbye to Bran.
1: Oh, that's true.
0: Uh, which I don't know. I'm not sure why they did that. Uh, maybe just like a break in in sort of like sad, happy, sad, happy, or something in the in the overall episode. I didn't watch the entire episode uh, recently. Yeah. I just kind of like went back and found these scenes, but it is. It's interesting to leave John on that sadder note as he's leaving Winterfell, whereas in the books it specifically says, like, Arya's laughter, like, the sound of her laugh kept him warm all the way to the wall. Mm -hmm. Like, for for him in the books, his lasting memory of Winterfell is that really sweet moment with Arya, whereas in the show they turn it into, like, him, this, like, sad goodbye with Bran and then the last time that he sees Rob, and then they added in... The goodbye scene with Ned.
1: And that, yeah, that's right. And I think that the showrunners were kind of looking for those emo- emotional gut punches. Mm-hmm. And they really wanted to sort of build each episode around those gut punches. And I almost found that in rewatching that exchange between him and Ned on the road, where he says, the next time we'll meet, we'll talk about your mother. Yeah oh it's so devastating it's so (laughs) devastating
0: this time around it is brutal uh
1: so there there there's your gut punch anyway
0: yeah it was also a really yeah again talking about sort of like economy of screen time adding that in was such like like that to me was like one of the first major flags that i feel like i got from benioff and weiss that they knew for sure that liana right. was john's mother because oh
1: see you're a lot smarter than i was that's interesting
0: because they they specifically write the dialogue in that like john says something about is she still alive or something and and ned's very careful to say like you have my blood uh without saying right like i i don't know it, it was it was written in a very sneaky way that told book readers that Benioff and Weiss knew something for sure that we didn't, and that they were setting up a little more exposition around John's mother.
1: That's really, I'm really glad you said that. That makes me think. I mean, there were some things that they really did well. I think that a lot of times, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, they they have to take a lot of abuse. And and a lot of it's well-deserved, but there were times where they would make choices that were altogether different than the choices Martin made, and they were really good choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's probably one of them.
0: I think that they were they were extremely skilled adapters of this story. I sure. think that all the spaces that they run into problems and where they start getting the most pile-ons of criticisms is when they had to start making it up for themselves. Um, Maybe. And I think that like these early seasons. I think that the early seasons are really strong because I think that they were good at identifying, like you said, like those sort of gut punch moments or yeah. ways to sort of cut and paste stories or internal thoughts into little speeches or monologues or little moments of exposition that still felt really engaging.
1: At the same hard. time, there were moments in season eight, like when Brienne finally becomes a knight. Oh, there were moments where it's like they're they're not adapting. As far as I know, they're not adapting. That is, that's them. Yeah. And it's it's. I think it's probably talk about men crying. I I can't watch that <laughs> scene without crying. Talk Me about neither. talk about a character arc. Talk about a satisfying conclusion. I mean, it, that scene has everything I want out of a Game of Thrones conclusion. Yeah, it's right there in season eight, and it's one of the best scenes in the entire show. Mm-hmm. I think I don't know if it's the problem. The problem is them adapting. I think it's the problem with them trying to speed it up. Yeah, I, I think that they were like thinking, yeah, we could probably you could probably do this in three seasons, but hell, let's do it in two because we're just done. That's yeah. That's that's the sense I'm getting anyway
0: yeah they seemed that is i think probably gonna remain one of the more one of the more confusing choices that they made that I think a lot- like a vast majority of fans just simply won't ever understand is how confident they were that the right thing to do was to wrap it up and about like they were like really hard on that seventy three ish episode run pretty early mm. I think by like season six they like season five and six, they, they had settled on that. Um, and they just, I think they maintained in interviews mostly to this day that they felt like that was the best way to tell the story and that do, like doing any more would have simply been milking the cow and dragging it out. And it's like, at the end of the day, that's not how it felt to a lot of fans watching, rushing through. And yeah, A, a Night of the Seven Kingdoms, I think that episode stands out. Because it feels like one of those episodes hmm. where everything just slowed down and you just had like beautiful character moment after beautiful character moment without a lot of like the fanciful CGI dragon epic battle stuff that I think Benny Offenweiss assumed everybody was there for at sure. that point. And yeah. it's like, nah, dude, like we felt like people fell in love with the show because... Of the way that, you know, John and Ned said goodbye and then never saw each other again. Um, yeah. Or like you said, uh, God, Jamie. Yeah. Jamie Knight and Brienne was like the biggest surprise to me. Like, I don't know. I just I didn't see that coming. And it felt so great. And it was so I so can't. Good. I just
1: I just the the the, the, the <laughs> I'm stumbling because I'm so emotionally invested in this pod looks at her mm-hmm. and pod knows her at this point he like he knows what she's all about and she it's almost like she she can't even admit it to herself like i don't want to mm-hmm. be a knight she can't even name it because it's something so deep in her core that she's even afraid to say it out loud yeah but pod knows her by this point and pod's like what are you talking about of course you do yeah Uh, And then, of course, Jamie, who's always a little bit slow on the uptake when it comes to these things, he realizes, like, oh, I I know what the right thing to do is. I'm going to do the right thing. I don't know.
0: That little, like, nod that Podrick gives, which, like, it almost feels like he's giving her permission to, like, let herself have this thing. That he knows she wants so badly. Absolutely. It's
1: so her concept of a knight is to be selfless. She's a servant of the crown or the, the servant of, you know, the person uh, that she's made this oath to. Right. Yeah. And so to want something like what what could be given to her uh, in terms of a title is something that she almost feels like I need permission to be a little bit selfish here hmm and uh and pod is like yeah go do it just do this one thing for yourself
0: yeah it's also the the part that gets me i mean the whole scene is is like flawless but i think the tears really start flowing when she turns around and sees like a, a room full of men who are from like every walk of possible life yeah. on this continent like there's a wildling there's Sir Davos, who was Hand of the King right. at one point, Tyrion, who's like, you know, everybody in the world knows who Tyrion Lannister is, all just like on their feet applauding her and like with no second thought to be like, hey, wait, a lady can't be a knight. Like every single one of them. Is it's just such
1: like, a pure scene. It's just so yeah. impeccably pure.
0: Yeah. Which I, I feel like I do have to give a lot of credit to Brian Cogman, who wrote that episode he has said in interviews that like benioff and weiss absolutely like helped him polish it and like figure out the right flow and Mm. like refine all the character moments but like that was the one episode of of season eight that he had the full writing credits on and i think that he throughout the show always was very very skilled at bringing together those kinds of like small but like very impactful character moments so thank you Brian Cogman exactly.
1: alright now Kim I have to confess when house when the news came out that House of the Dragon was in production I was mildly optimistic mm-hmm. when the recent news came out that they're doing Dunkin' Egg I I totally geeked out I thought yes perfect this is so perfect and I think part of it is, for me, it's such a simple story of the good night or, yeah. you know, it's such a simple story to tell is that I don't think that they can mess it up. I just, I feel yeah. like maybe I should be knocking on wood or something, but I feel like that's the perfect story. I don't, I think it's going to be delightful. That's, that's my sense.
0: Yeah. I think that more than most of George's other writings has published writings that take place in Westeros. I think the Duncan egg stories. Yeah. Like you said, have a little bit more of a, they're, they're just, they're more isolated from the rest of this like big sprawling, overwhelming epic narrative. And that will, I think that that will make them more compelling and more accessible for, for people who might've started sort of tuning out on the lore or, are a little maybe fuzzy on like, like, I don't even like house of the dragon where I like writing about it, writing the few articles that I've written and I have to be like, Oh, this is like during King Viserys reign. Viserys is not like, that's just a name that a lot of Targaryens had. But like, if you recognize Mm -hmm. that name, it's because Danny's brother was also right. like, it's like you, you immediately have to start kind of helping people through the slightly confusing mm-hmm. like lore and the succession of kings and like i don't know in a way that you can obviously all of those names and there are still targaryens and everyone involved in in the Knight stories but you don't ha- like none of that is necessary to understand the compelling things that are happening between those two characters
1: to stick the landing on a sprawling you know ensemble cast House of Cards kind of thing. It takes so many things to go right. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the one thing that that dragon has going for it is that the story is written, right? There's no <laughs> there's no problem with it. You know, the you know, the next book not coming out or whatever with that one. Right. But with the Duncan Egg, it's just such a simple, pure story that I kind of feel like. Yeah, you need you need good writers who can adapt. We know that HBO can do that. Good acting, good dialogue. We know HBO can do those things. I think that the chances of them being able to stick the landing on that one are pretty high. Yeah. So I feel very optimistic.
0: Yeah, I do. I the reporter in me feels obligated to say that we don't know for sure that a Dunkin' Egg show is happening. Yet.
1: Oh, don't um, do that to me! I'm sorry. Don't do it I'm to doing me. it.
0: Uh, so far, HBO has declined to comment in every like to me uh, uh, to the initial reporter who broke the news, and even even the initial report uh, from Variety wasn't saying that like they've greenlit a pilot. It's just that like they have writers in discussions uh-huh. about making not just a Dunkin' Egg show, but like a whole group. Of sure. Game of Thrones related shows, uh, James Hibbert at Entertainment Weekly followed up the initial news with his own report that sort of sort of hinted at this idea that like HBO, like Warner Media, but like HBO Max might have seen what Disney Plus did with Star Wars sure. and Mandalorian and how they're like creating this like web of interconnected shows and thought like okay maybe that's the the, that's the, the framework that we should take, but we don't. We don't know anything for certain except House of the Dragon. I'm waiting to at least get HBO to to say on the record that somebody's like writing a script for Dunkin' Egg because we don't even know that. Kim, it.
1: I need more Dunkin' Egg in my life.
0: I'm so sorry. I, I can't I need, promise I re- that to I'm, you yet.
1: I'm just going to ignore the last five minutes because I, <laughs> I want to live in a world where I can look forward to Dunkin' Egg. Well, totally. Oh. I'm totally gonna live in that reality by choice. <laughs> okay. This was uh, delightful. I love talking with Game of Thrones aficionados, and I mean, gosh, who who's who's more? Who would be more than than Kim Renfro? <laughs> Game of Thrones aficionado extraordinaire. Now, we mentioned early on your book, which is a must-purchase for any Game of Thrones fan. It's called uh, The Unofficial Guide to Game of Thrones. Is that right?
0: Yeah, pretty straightforward.
1: So I got that right. The
0: publishers <clears throat> went with there.
1: <laughs> and uh, you can get that in almost any bookstore and, of course, online in all of the usual ways. Um, but do you have a preferred method of purchase
0: um i'm a big fan of of independent bookstores uh so if you find your local bookstore and give them a ring or send them an email they can usually if they don't already have a copy I, it would mean the world to me if you bought my book, anybody out there. But it would mean doubly well if you took the time to go support a local bookstore. Because
1: Absolutely. Yeah, call your local bookseller. Ask for the unofficial guide to Game of Thrones, Kim Renfro. Kim, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. This was so fun.
1: Steve, have you ever experienced an event in your life that you interpreted as an omen?
3: Yesterday I got in the car, and the first song that came on was Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind. And I I interpreted that as like, okay, you're going to have a good day today.
1: Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Did you go to Mexico? No. Because that's what it, I would have done if, if that song had come on.
3: Yeah, but it also, it in that song, I mean, it, while it's inspiring, it also sort of tempers your expectations. Like, it, it's a, you got a long way to go. Such a long way. To
1: go. It is inspiring. However, it's also realistic.
3: It's like, hey, if I want to cut down on this journey, I'm going to really need to to get going pretty quickly here.
1: He needs to get to the border of Mexico. Yeah. To be free again. To be, yeah.
3: And then I never looked at the lyrics, but I think he says something about, you know, I'll be around till 10 or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be here till 10.
1: I'll be here. And then I, I got to
3: go. I got a long way to go. <laughs>
1: 10. <laughs> Ten seems like an odd uh, odd time. I mean, if yeah, I was either going, way,
3: whether it's morning or night, really. If
1: I was on the run from the law, I would probably <laughs> want to leave it, you know, before dawn or something like that. Yeah.
3: yeah, exactly. It's like is he pulling a late shift? Is he pulling what's?
1: Well, his dad was a lawless man, so
3: maybe he's waiting for Costco to open. <laughs> <laughs> if I got a long way to go, I really want the cheapest gas. <laughs> Gotta get some snacks for the road.
1: Some jerky, so, perhaps. <laughs> So season two, episode one has an <laughs> omen. <laughs> yes, it does. And the omen is a comet. Um, right,
3: which is basically a shot-for-shot shot remake of American Tale, right? You know, somewhere out there, everyone's looking at the same
1: star. Uh, yeah, somewhere out there. That's right. Yes. And you may remember that the first episode of season one, there was an omen, and that was uh, the, a dire wolf was impaled by the antlers of a stag. Oh, yeah. And this foreshadowed the the Baratheon-Stark conflict. So we're starting right off the gate with another omen. Mm-hmm. You could interpret that as something magical, but there were a lot of other little hints at magic.
3: Now we got dragon again.
1: I mean... Dragon's back.
3: Dragons are now just... now. It's in the narrative. There's no... They're not rumor and conjecture anymore. It's...
1: Yeah, but they're not really... I mean... They're just like pets at this point, you know.
3: I, see, that's the thing. I feel like you've been so desensitized to magic that you're like, "Yeah, these are just pet dragons, right?" And I'm like, mm-hmm. "Dragon is a dragon is a dragon." I, I come from the old school, right? I don't care if that's a domesticated <laughs> dragon. I don't care if it's a feral dragon. It'd be dragon.
1: Um, Danny's making eyes at Ricaro. I know. I, know. I forgot goodness. about this, and I, I. What did you think? I mean, just it. It feels like she just put her ex-husband on a pyre uh, I how do you feel about Riccaro? uh
3: yeah i mean i think i think because danny i think is you know i mean she's dragon man she got dragon blood she's all i mean I, I, I all bets are off when it comes to danny at this point but but yeah the dude i'm like whoa he's the one i have the most issue with
1: she's a teenager with power Mm-hmm. and so is joffrey yes uh Ugh. Freaking I God. mean, let's let's be honest, he's got definitely more power than she does. Well, she does have a dragon. She does have a dragon, a dragon but at that point it's sort of like, Do you They're want do you dragon. want a dragon or do you want like a Nalgene bottle with some fresh water?
3: No, I guess that's fair.
1: Joffrey is he's pitting, it's blood sport. He's pitting knight against knight. Yeah. Hedge knight <laughs> against hedge knight or whatever.
3: This is what's on. This is what's on TV today.
1: Yeah, that's right. Daytime, blood sport, nighttime, watch the sky. And Joffrey gets slapped again. That's, that's always <laughs> yeah. Can't get enough of that, man. Yeah, it's nice. It's yeah. You know, they, they really should. There has to be on YouTube, like, a Joffrey slap montage, right? I would hope so. We yeah. have a discussed
3: Tyrion. Tyrion just kind of comes rolling in. And this is where I was having a little bit, like, it, it, it took me a little bit. Because I was like, is this, like, how much time it. Taken place right between seasons when Tyrion shows up, there was a certain matter of factness that I had assumed that okay, well, he's, mm-hmm. he's been the the hand, and that's why he's able to just sort of kind of roll through like this. But then I was like, oh, he this is it, this is the big reveal to to Cersei, and that yeah, which is a which is a fabulous uh, sequence.
1: I, yeah, so this was a big point of discussion in the writers' room leading up to this this season. Because by the map, it would probably take Tyrion three weeks or thereabouts to get to King's Landing. And so the question was, well, if it took him three weeks, then should he still be wearing his armor? Ah. And they, they really wanted some continuity there between like, so he just stepped off the battlefield and now he's, you know, sort of rubbing it right. in Joffrey's face. Can we assume that he just threw it on when he got there? Just to, That's just- a Exactly what they decided. They're like, okay. look, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna imagine that Tyrion knows how to make a grand entrance. And so he travels, gets to King's Landing, puts his armor back on. Yeah. Just so he can deliver that line. Didn't see you on the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. And I you know, it's he, he's just he's just playing with fire with Joffrey, it seems. Yeah, he is. But Joffrey, it's almost like Joffrey's that kid who's like, I am never, gonna, you know, I'm always gonna be sitting at the kids' table with this guy.
3: I do like how he um, sort of took over decorating the throne room the same way Dwight Schrute painted the uh, office all black when he uh, became manager of Dunder Yeah,
1: it's like any teenager who's finally got a can of paint in in their bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your bedroom uh, when you were a teenager had a. I remember this vividly. It was that long poster of Michael Jordan with uh, his wingspan, like six, you know, six foot yeah. seven wingspan or whatever. That's right. And I remember a very neat, very, very neat room. Yes, very neat room. This is, a, this is a high, This is a very high compliment <laughs> coming from me. Almost <laughs> as high as the time that I told you that I think you'd make a good serial killer.
3: Yes. Well, no, I, those, those, that, that still rings true because, you know, I really didn't pay a lot of attention during career day. Mm-hmm. And so just, it's nice to know I can still get that kind of wisdom and, and, and cause that's the beauty of being a serial killer is it's not like you can be like, Oh man, my time has passed. He <laughs> did you know, you just, it could be like a post, like it's a retirement plan. really
1: Right. I totally get that. And I think that a lot of people feel like when they get to their forties, they're pretty well set in their career path. Right. But there's that, that moment of transition where you have to decide, are, are you going to become a serial killer or not? Because
3: there's always people.
1: <laughs> this, That's what's kind of nice about it. I think, I feel like you're, you're uh, <laughs> almost a paraphrase of Jesus. Just though. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I just figured that was going to be like what the big takeaway was when I'm on the stand.
1: You know, there's always people.
3: What, what is it? What was your motivation? Well, there's just always people. And it's like, I don't know if he was saying that because like he's complaining. Like, ah, there's always people. <laughs> or if it was like, hey, good news, man. There's always people. You're Unlimited. not going to miss a few. Unlimited resources, and
1: come on. There's tons. So Joffrey is ascending. He's- yeah. And his mother, and he—he he now seems like they have a different relationship.
3: The tension of Joffrey, right? I mean, he's a teenager with power. It's, you know, he's trying to show that he's—he's he's the king. In his mind, the interpretation of a leader is you call the shots. And of course, we see that the—the the contrast to that, when Jon Snow is confronted by the commander, mm. um, who says, "You know, if you want to lead, better learn to follow." There's something very poignant about that.
1: Uh, Bran has a wolf dream. He
3: does as you know as, as young boys do.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, would you rather have a wolf dream or a wet dream?
3: Are they mutually exclusive?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know the rules on this one. <laughs> That's the thing about a wet dream. There are no rules.
3: It just you think you know what's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I had a wet dream, and I was dreaming I was pooping. So you've, you, you break that one apart, Dr. Freud.
1: Uh, well, the poop and the comet sort of serve the same function in this particular case, I think.
3: <laughs> so, the, and this is where I'm going to show some ignorance. Should I have already known about the whole God-burning ceremony and who that woman was?
1: No, she's, that's Melisandra. People okay. just call her Mel.
3: Okay, so she's new. That was, her, that was the new. introduction.
1: She is sometimes called the Red Witch. She oh. worships the Red God. See, okay. it's, all, it's, all, it's a very good branding effort here. Yeah, apparently. And uh, we've been hearing about Stannis, who is uh, Robert Baratheon's brother. So
3: this is the big reveal.
1: Yeah, right. So okay. we finally meet Stannis, right? Yeah, yeah. And one of the first things we learn about Stannis is he's forsaken the gods of his youth the faith of the seven in order to sort of embrace this new monotheistic red God religion.
3: That's like, yeah, you've, you've ditched and to, to focus on
1: Timberlake. That's right. That's exactly what it's going on. And of course you've got the old guard, Mm -hmm. Meister Crescent. Yeah. So Meister Crescent is going to uh, say, Hey, no one remembers in I mean come on Exactly, come on. And uh he makes a play to try to poison her.
3: Yeah. But it didn't really I mean, am I missing something there? Like he drank it he knew he he drank it. Yeah. Is he's, that
1: is that he dumb? was <laughs> <laughs> Well well it seems like you might have an opinion on this.
3: I just seemed like I'm like, all right, I see what he's trying to do and then he's like, ah, look at this. Ah oh, crap. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's like pushing all your chips in with the nothing hand yeah and the other person's kind of like yeah no I, I i knew what you had in your hand and uh,
3: i remember i remember it was a church sermon i heard one time and they said that you know if like not forgiving somebody like holding a grudge is like drinking poison and hoping the other person would die and i always thought this guy does not know how to poison
1: people <laughs> well and uh clearly uh, this person could take some cues from melisandra who, who's a very wise religious person so we're supposed to think because somehow she has an immunity to poison and i think that this is supposed to be sort of a wink to some sort of magic as well right
3: right he knew <laughs> so i'm gonna go back to like he knew right i mean he did it <laughs> and then he drank yes. it and then it was like I'm like I'm looking at it and like I know this is supposed to be a dramatic moment but I'm like well yeah man that's that's what that's what it does
1: so if he would have just stood up and said hey let's drink to the one true god and handed her the cup right uh, that seems pretty obvious but if you drink it first so is he willing to die to
3: take her with him is that what what, what I was to interpret
1: yes okay. yes and okay. I think we can return to your original question, is that dumb? (laughs) Well,
3: apparently. (laughs) I'm going to stay on record as, yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Like, I mean, play the long game a little bit.
1: Uh, we meet Craster's wives, who are also Craster's daughters. Yeah, that's uh, that's convenient. So just in case you thought we were done with the incest, nope. No, we're, uh, it's like a public
3: service announcement. This whole thing is like this whole anti-incest agenda that we apparently needed. <laughs> <laughs> it was on the yeah. rise.
1: Unfortunately, I don't know if it had the effect we were hoping it was going to have. Um, you know, we all saw the this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs commercial, right? right? Yeah. There are people
3: right now that are like, I didn't even know incest was an option until you showed it to me.
1: Oh, man. All right. So, yeah. So Jon Snow's having trouble because, uh, unfortunately, he is both as pretty as a girl. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was quite the. <laughs> was quite and he's the... staring daggers at old Craster. All
3: right. Well, I mean, I, I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of reasons to maybe not be a Craster fan.
1: No. Oh really? Because I was a big <laughs> I was a big craster supporter back in the day. What's your major problem with it? <laughs> Jeez. All right, so we are approaching what is known in the fandom as the War of Five Kings. Okay. We've met four of the five now. I've got Joffrey. Right. Joffrey is certainly Rob. Uh, Rob Rob. Stannis.
3: Got, uh, Stannis. Yes, yes, yes. I was right on his
1: name. And Renly. Right. I think we're going to meet, meet the fifth king next episode. Far up. Yeah, yeah. We... So Joffrey kills a
3: lot of babies.
1: He does. He kills the babies. They, well, because you see a little insecurity there. Because sure. if indeed the rumor is spreading that he has no legitimate claim to the throne, because he's not really Baratheon. And all bastards have claimed at the throne right i feel like they say bastards in in a more compelling intonation in the north It's mm. really that like, a bastards
3: yeah that's fair
1: and then south it it just doesn't it's just not Everybody, doing it for every, me
3: everybody's just a little sassier in the south <laughs> i mean just
1: everything's just
3: got a little bit of like ooh it's a bastard mm probably because it's it's sort of a Giants Dodgers rivalry right i mean giants you know giants fans tend to really despise dodgers fans because mm. there's almost a certain level of elitism right i think giants well fans yeah it's a north south a
1: little, thing
3: they fancy themselves a little more blue collar that's right uh, and so so when you say bastard in the north like you probably like yeah man we're you know there's bastards abound up here
1: well, I was thinking about this with John because he t- he really takes issue to being called a, th- a Southerner, right? hmm And I was just thinking that's sort of like, you know, when people ask where we grew up, we always say Northern California or Bay Area. We do not want to be associated with Southern California. But yeah. then, of course, we go up to Oregon, and all of a sudden we're just sort of lumped in with all of the Californians. Right. Yeah. This is an episode where it sort of really illustrates... The problem with a zero-sum game brother father system, in in the sense that, look, if you've got a system of government that's sort of meant to give all of the power to the eldest son, and basically crumbs to everyone else, it's only a matter of time before people get murdered. Right. Right. So you get you the brothers against brothers. You know, like uh, the the Baratheon brothers don't really like each other. Um, they 're willing to go to war against each other joffrey's out there killing all of his half brothers or maybe not even half brothers but uh, right uh, and but people you know bastards who he believes are his half brothers and almost
3: needs to believe right because that 's right because if this if the rumor that he 's speaking of is true yeah. then there 's zero relation and that would negate his claim to the throne. So it's a, it's a power move that also works as a, you know, disguise.
1: Yep. And then you got this guy, Craster who decides I'm going to go across the wall. I'm going to set up my own little fiefdom and I'm just going to eliminate all of the competition as soon as they're born. Right. He's got no sons. He will never have someone that that can sort of vie for his throne.
3: Right. It'll, it'll die with him essentially.
1: So, this is a very bad system of government. It's a bad system of sort of... <laughs>
3: yeah, that was a problematic, I would say. <laughs> it's pretty wild. It's a pretty wild episode. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, this is uh, one of my faves so far. I mean, I know we don't oh, have a small, really? s- small sample size, but this okay. one...
1: Well, I'm glad that you, you brought this up because I was feeling like... Basically, they're setting the table. You started a new game of chess, and... You had to take a little while just to put the pieces in place. But there wasn't any sort of great reveal or I was I was curious what you would think about this episode. Um
3: oh, it's great. They're advancing the runners, man. Okay. All right. Lot Good. Of, yeah. Yeah. This one, the political webs that were being woven and and, you know, some of the adjustments based on what happened last I mean, there was just you know, it got just enough Jamie Lannister you know it was just enough of everything um i think I, I to me it's a great season opener in my opinion i i think it does a lot to to build the tension i think you know if i was to pick one word for this episode i would say desperation and i think i think you see it throughout and i think it's it's fast i mean everyone's clinging right there's a certain amount of gripping going on
1: later today steve uh, i heard that you're going to rewatch romancing the stone yeah i i just might I want you to know I watched it last night. How'd you feel? Well, I feel like it is beat for beat. It's a retelling of The Hobbit. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm not not just saying it's kind of like The Hobbit. It is The Hobbit. It's The Hobbit with sex. And instead of Bilbo Baggins, it's Kathleen Turner as Joan Wilder. I'm telling you, it's the exact same story. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It is the same story. Okay. Now. You got a map, you got a you got a stone, instead of a instead of a dragon, you got crocodiles, which basically uh-huh. the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Danny DeVito's your dwarf. It, <laughs> it, it has everything the Hobbit has. Wow. Yeah. The Joan Wilder? <laughs> now I will say, at the end of Romancing the Stone, I feel like the writers pushed the story into Lord of the Rings a little bit, <laughs> so it's not. I guess I shouldn't say it's a one-to-one allegory, but uh, yeah. Then Jewel of the Nile is just a similarian. Really it's so. I forgot about Jewel of the Nile. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about Jewel of the that. Now I've got to watch that.
3: You've replaced the Eddie Grant theme song with Billy Ocean's The Going Gets Tough, The Tough Get Going Oh
1: gosh, that tells you everything you need to know about that movie (laughs) (laughs) For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to ask a question I really don't have the answer to this But here it is Is Catelyn, for all of her foibles, the best example of a mother in Martin's world? I'm just talking halfway decent mothers who love and care for their children who are not murderous. So the bar bar is pretty low here. Is Catelyn the best example of this? I mean, clearly, Catelyn has this disdain for John. And that, of course, that dysfunction is going to have ripple effects throughout the whole family. But in general, I get the sense that Catelyn's a pretty good mother to her other children. Maybe based on too little evidence. I don't know. But here's what I'm thinking. Who are the characters in this story who have good mothers? Danny, No. Cat? We're not really sure about that. Cersei? Her mother died early, uh, uh, along with Tyrion and Jaime. Ned and Robert both fostered at the Eyrie. Theon fostered at Winterfell. I don't know what to say about Joffrey. I mean, look, (laughs) Uh, Joffrey's mother clearly loves him and protects him, but she's murderous. And you could say the same thing about Ilaria Sand. And I don't know about Tormund. Do we know much more about Tormund's maternal presence besides the possibility that he was suckled by a giantess? Not sure. Uh Elena may be um a good <laughs> she's she's a good teacher for Marjorie, although she's a grandmother, not a mother. Is she a good role model? I mean, she's one of my favorite characters, but is she a good role model? I don't know. Who are the characters that have good mothers in this story? I can only think of one possibility, and I think I've got to lean on the show rather than the books for this, and that is Samuel Tarley. Sam happens to be one of the very few examples of someone who has a halfway decent mother who loves him and cares for him who isn't also murderous. Which is also interesting because Sam is attracted to Gilly. And I wonder if that's why he's one of the few just good characters. He's not a morally great character. Sam Welltarley is simply a good character. And if that's right, if that's correct, what does it say about Martin's view of motherhood? Like what's going on there? If you have any thoughts on this, hit me up at book at baldmove.com. And that's all for this week.